Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am so pleased today to have my friend and my colleague, Professor Karen Morrison here at Georgia State as my guest. Uh, Karen has a BA from Brown, where my brother went as well. Uh, JD from Columbia. She clerked for the uh, district court and for the second circuit. She has a deep background in journalism, which explains why she's such a great writer, I think, um, from the City University of London. She also was an AUSA in the Eastern District of New York, and we could spend an hour talking about that, but we're not going to today. We have other fish to fry. Uh, her law review articles have appeared in Cornell and Vanderbilt, California, Columbia, and Virginia online. She's a prolific scholar, a great teacher, uh, and I'm really glad to have her here. Thank you, Karen, for being here. Thank you for inviting me, and also for your incredibly kind words. <laughs> <laughs> they were all true. So, um, you have a new article out, brand new, and if one goes to the Virginia Law Review, they will see it right on the front page of the of the website, which is terrific, and it is couldn't be more timely. It's called State Abortion Bans Pregnancy, Pregnancy as a New Form of Coverture. Now, just a little trigger warning, this is going to be a depressing discussion for those people who are pro-choice, so um, I just wanted to put that out there. So let's begin with this. What is coverture? When was it? And why is it relevant to today? So coverture is a, a common law principle where um, married women would have their legal existences suspended during the time of their marriage. Therefore, in other words, their legal identities were covered by that of their husband. Coverture in French, couverture, it means um, blanket. Great <laughs> accent. <laughs> in France, okay. so that helps. Um, uh, so, um, so yeah, so it's this idea that you're that that the the, the legal existence, sort of the the legal independence and and personhood of of one gets subsumed into that of the other more powerful one, um, the the husband. What implication? So, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, so all I was going to say was that so this started like in the early Middle Ages, you know, went through the the common law, merry old England, and and came over to the United States where it remained. Um, an important principle probably up until the mid-19th century when we Married Women's Property Act began to kind of dismantle that idea. So it's, let's say it's 1820 or 1790 or something like that, and I am a single woman. Do no. I have, I know I can't vote yet, of course, but it didn't apply to me, right, if I'm single? No, if you're single, you, so basically it mostly had to do with property. So what it meant um, not having a legal, a separate legal existence meant that um, you couldn't sue people, you couldn't be sued most of the time, um, and you couldn't dispose of your own property. So married women couldn't couldn't earn income and keep it. They couldn't, uh, you know, make wills. Uh, they basically had no financial independence at all. So if you were a single woman um, and not, you know, young enough to be dominated by your family, uh, you could presumably, you know, act as a as a as a private individual with, you know, right. dispose of property, make wills and such. Of course, a lot of professions were not open to women back then. Um, and, and, even right. as, and even as late as the 1880s, the Supreme Court said that Illinois could borrow women from being attorneys. But, but going back to, so if I bring, if a woman brings a lot of money into the marriage, say from her, I don't, know, I don't know how she would get it back then, but assuming she had money and property. Inheritance, probably. <laughs> oh, well, well, if she had no brothers. Right, right. Does that property become the husband's? Yeah. In every way? In terms of disposition, yeah, he has to, he, he's got control over it. It okay. doesn't necessarily become his in name, but, okay. um, and I'm not, I'm probably mis, 
characterizing some of the financial aspects right. because expertise is not exactly sure. in that area. But but there was basically you had no financial independence. Right. The 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 advantage for women, at least as 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 it was justified at the time, was that you know she was protected. The man would take care of her. Um, and she didn't have to worry her pretty little head about, you know, matters of business or commerce. Right. Or, you know, things like that. Just the kind of ideas we want our Supreme Court embracing today. Anyway, we'll get back. We'll get back to that in a few minutes. Um, okay. So your article, State Abortion Bans Pregnancy as a New Form of Coverture, obviously suggests that what states are doing now is similar to, in some substantial ways, obviously it's not identical or the same, but similar to what those laws were back then. Before we get to that analogy. Give us some background on what laws are being passed now by the states and, and how draconian they really so, are. So um, there's there's dozens and dozens of laws, often in the same state. Um, but basically, there's there's a there's a, a whole frenzy of new legislation that's coming out. So many many uh, states, and we're talking mostly um, conservative Republican states. Obviously, not states like Vermont. Sure. Um, places like Texas. Um, you know, even Georgia, Florida, you know, South Carolina, et cetera. Um, they either had trigger laws that were going to become law should Roe be um, should Roe be overturned. They had laws that that they had in, that they had in, initiated to test the boundaries of how far the Supreme Court would go short of overruling Roe. So laws like Texas's um, Senate Bill Eight, which basically was the one where um, anybody could sue an, anybody in the state could sue an provider or anybody who provided an abortion for a ten thousand dollar bounty, um, and uh, you know, and and things like that. So, so there's been laws um, outlawing abortion entirely from the time of conception, ones that prohibit abortion from six weeks um, on. Um, and then there's a whole mess of different um, of different laws in terms of um, what exceptions they'll countenance. Right. So some um, anti-abortion laws have no exceptions except for um, the, the the very narrow saving the life of the woman. Um, some have exceptions for rape or incest. Uh, approximately a dozen don't. Um, and so it's the the main the main thrust is. The uh, the restrictions are more and more draconian in terms of the <clears throat> in terms of the um, penalties that abortion providers face. Right. They can face up to ninety nine years, literally life in prison in Texas and one other state, which I'm now not remembering. Um, the uh, the prohibition of abortion is starting at earlier and earlier stages of of development. Right. So, you know, from the moment of conception, even not even before implantation, like just. Right. Well, in Georgia, it's six weeks and most women, a lot of women don't know they're pregnant at six weeks, right? Most people don't know they're pregnant at six weeks. It's, yeah. you know, if you, God forbid, you have a slightly irregular cycle, like right. most people, you would have no idea. Right. Um, right. And uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so, and so these so it's all those things. These laws, that, and they, they take different forms and shapes, but I want to be clear um, for the lawyers and non-lawyers listening to this. In the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe and Casey, the court basically said, we're going to apply a rational basis test to all abortion regulations, 
and a very deferential one at that. Right. It is, so it, it brings me back. This is a little off subject, and we'll get to Coverture in a minute. But back in the Casey days, um, back in Casey, yeah. Justice William Rehnqu Chief Justice William Rehnquist wrote a very angry dissent, as he did in most of those abortion cases. But one of the most interesting things, or maybe the only interesting thing about that dissent, was he threw in there that if the life of the woman is at stake and the state chose the fetus, that would not be a rational basis. Now, he said that on a very different court at a very different time. There is nothing in Dobbs that says that. And I just want to get this right out front before we get to coverture. I think it's possible this court might say that a state, if a doctor has to choose between a fetus and a woman, he can choose, he can choose a state law can require him to choose the fetus and the Supreme Court would find that constitutional. That's my reading of Dobbs. Do you read it that way? I do. That's unfortunately. Yeah, that is so sad. I can't even talk about. It. I mean, it's hard to talk about. It's 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 it can lead to some grotesque outcomes. Right. Um, right. You know, there's there's a, at least one story about a woman who was brain dead, who um, her family, her husband wanted to let her go, and um, a court forced her to stay alive on life support. Um, because she was pregnant, Jeez. even though there was no way the baby was going to survive. And she was literally decomposing. It's like the most disgusting thing I've ever heard. Well, I, well, I, can't, I may be able to tie you on much that. More that. I, might be able to, I might be able to tie your disgusting on there. Because from what I understand, in some of these states now, and again, we're going to get to coverture, but in some of these states, Texas especially, I think, doctors have been given extremely imprecise instructions as to what to do if the woman's life is in danger and, and, and the fetus's life is therefore in danger. And I think they're, they're, they're siding with the fetus because they don't wanna to go to prison. Well, of course. I mean, it's, and you can't blame them because, I mean, a big problem is how uh, rushed a lot of these laws were. And they're not, they're not specific. They're incredibly vague. They just say, you know, unless, the life of the woman is in, you know, is is in immediate or imminent danger. Right. It's it's unclear what that means. If a person is, um, you know, if if a person's pregnant and she's looking at, uh, you know, this is going to raise her risk of dying of, you know, she can't get cancer treatment, for example, right. and she's, you know, she she really should be doing chemo now, and her chances of survival if they do it in six months are much lower. Um, that doesn't, you know, that might not be considered to be imminent. At the right. same time, you know, she may die, but it might not be that minute. But even when they're dealing with um, people who are having miscarriages, and let's be clear, um, these abortion restrictions are not just going to apply to people seeking an abortion. They're going to apply to anybody who's pregnant and has any kind of medical emergency. So it can apply to like women who really want a baby. But if you're having a miscarriage and you're um, in an emergent state, you can get sent home because doctors are too afraid to intervene because the normal way of treating, um, you know, heavy bleeding or, a, or a, a difficult miscarriage is basically to perform an abortion, to remove, you know, what's left of the fetus. Um, but, yeah. you know, patients are getting sent home so that they can come back with sepsis. Um, at which point the doctors are like, okay, we better do something. And I'm not blaming the doctors at all. I don't see how you can, you know, they're, they, they, they risk losing their livelihoods. They're, 
their freedom. Right. You know? Sure. No, um, I agree. I agree. And, and this is the depressing part of this I warned about at the beginning. Um, one last thing before coverture. Before, sure. I think it was before you came to, to Georgia. I'm not positive. But there was a moment in time, I want to say 10 to 15 years ago, when the Georgia legislature had passed a law, this is when Roe and Casey are on the books, that made doctors' instructions during these kinds of times very unclear. And even when, even when abortion was constitutionally protected, there was a huge outcry. And one of our colleagues, Charity Scott, um, who's since retired, um, enlisted me to help like, go to the legislature and say, you can't put doctors in this position. Whatever your feelings are about abortion, whatever your feelings are about fetuses, right. it's not fair to the doctors who have to make emergency calls under substantial pressure with a jail sentence hand, you know, over their heads. What kind of medical system is that? Um, we did get that changed. Um, uh, but but that, that, that problem is now magnified by 15 or 20 states or more you know, in 2023, yeah. and, and it's a real problem. All right, so, so why coverture? Why did you take that perspective, and, and, and where do you see the, the comparison? So it, it just, when I, was, when I was reading about these, these different cases and kind of looking at the, um, looking a little bit about the statements of some of the lawmakers explaining that, you know, they were going to have the most pro-life state ever, and, <laughs> you know, this world abortion came to die and all, all the right. rest of it. Um, what effectively doing was that they were, they were behaving and these laws are kind of um, structured in such a way that the woman and I'm going to call it the woman, sure. you know, the pregnant person, but whatever. The, the woman has no legal uh, existence. Pa pause right there. Pa pa pause right there because if my child ever sees this, they'll get, I'll get in trouble. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> um, we're going to talk about this in a binary way. Okay. We, we both know there are trans uh, Absolutely. Women. And I'm not trying to exclude right. any, any non-binary yeah. pregnant people or trans yeah. men who are also pregnant or yeah. anything like that. Yeah. Um, I'm the reason I use the word woman is be is because of the historical kind yes. of context of it. Yeah. <clears throat> that coverture was something that dealt with married women as you know right. as such, and it also fits in with these stereotypes about women specifically that have been with us since the dawn of time um, as these kinds of inferior beings who need men to make decisions for them. That's why I keep saying women, but it's not. Um, I'm, I'm absolutely not trying to exclude i know um, i had to say that for my for my child kai <laughs> no you're entirely right because because it you know i can i can i, I wouldn't want to be misunderstood yeah. um but okay now of course i've lost my Co coverture and <laughs> why did you pick coverture as the analogy oh, yeah. coverture so it basically was all they were looking at the way the way the the court was talking about it and the way the legislatures are um promulgating these laws the woman doesn't count the pregnant person is just gone. They're not there. That's sort of what the dissenters were talking about in Dobbs. That right. um, the the majority was looking at it like this wasn't difficult at all. There's a life at stake, the fetus. Um, and it, it, in effect, what had happened was it's not that women as a class are being treated like second class citizens. It's that the combination of being female biologically and pregnant suspends your legal existence during the time of your pregnancy so that you know, doctors can't use their own medical judgment for like what's best for you or things like that. It was, it's effectively a time when your independence and your, your legal existence is suspended. And it, it just shocked me how similar it was. Um, 
to these common law ideas of coverture where, you know, we're sort of like, sorry, ladies, but just, you know, just while you're married, we'll just, we'll just right. pretend you don't exist. Right. And it's really kind of that for, for the, the people who are pregnant. And what is your response? I'm playing devil's advocate now for a minute. Um, if I was a, someone who really in my heart of hearts and in my soul of soul believe that the fetus is a full-blown human life at conception, and therefore there are, of course, Eric Siegel does not believe this, but I'm playing devil's advocate. Um, um, and, and, and therefore there are two lives at stake, uh, maybe even two equal lives. And when two equal lives are at stake, there are moments in time we have to choose one. Sometimes both can't survive. Um, and so I'm just saying that person may say this is harder than you're making it out to be. What would you respond to? Well, look, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm right. just saying that even if you do accept the fact that life begins at conception, that, you know, the zygote or embryo or fetus is, is, a, is a human person, it doesn't necessarily follow that that person gets precedence over, um, over the, the host body. Right. Um, there's that, there's that well-known, a defensive abortion written, I think in the 1970s by, um, Judith Jarvis Thompson, who basically made this analogy that like, if you were to wake up one day, um, with your kidneys being used by some famous violinist, um, you didn't have a moral obligation to continue letting your kidneys be used by this violinist, even if he was going to die without the use of your kidneys, because we don't have, um, that's not part of our legal tradition. So if you go back to actual normal common law, um, as most people learn when they're doing torts in their first year and often learn with shock, there's no duty to rescue. There's no duty to pick up a baby that you find lying face down in a puddle of water. Right. Um, even if you could do so with no, you know, risk to yourself and, you know, it, it would clearly be the, the right thing to do. So when you look at, when you look at how ordinary individuals are allowed to protect themselves, protect themselves, protect their property, protect their bodies, um, usually the person who's there first right. or who owns yes. the practice <laughs> is able to, um, you know, right. uh, the, repel intruders. Right. So even if, what I still, um, and, and obviously there's, there's, there's a lot of religious implications about um, agreeing that life begins at conception. It's, you know, so there, there, there's many, many, many people will not believe that that's so. But even if, you, even if it were, what I'm not seeing in all the anti-abortion rhetoric is the explanation of, even if the fetus is a person from the minute of conception, how come they get precedence? Right. Like why, right. why, why does the already alive person who's or already living and breathing person right. have to, um, you know, if there were two people on a raft, that's not how the common law would, right. would, right. um, would make would make the decision. They don't say, "Oh, the new person who's just arrived on the wreck has the right to push the first one off." That's not how it works. So, based on that 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 hypothetical you gave, I actually, when I um, people who listen to my podcast know that as a matter of constitutional law, I have quite a lot of misfeelings about Casey and Roe. But as a policy matter, I am pro-choice all the way down from my head to my toes. And the analogy I give, and I, is this one, which is based on that one. It's a it's a plagiarism of that one, is that a, a brother 
kills, I'm sorry, runs over his twin in the street intentionally mm -hmm. because he wants to inherit all the money from his parents. And the person right. he runs over is in a hospital and can only live with some non-invasive blood transfusion from his twin because he's a twin. And that's right. the only way he can live. He's going to die. In every state in this country, that twin brother who, did, who actually put that person in that position by running him over has no obligation to have a non-invasive blood transfusion with that person. And you compare the that's evil right. doer, the, 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 the twin who literally intentionally ran over his brother to inherit money. And it's a non-invasive, yeah. non-dangerous blood trend. Can't make him do it. And yet we make women have abortion, uh, have pregnant, have, have children. I mean, it's, 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 it's crazy. Uh, you like my analogy? Should I keep using it? <laughs> I think it's a good analogy. And I think it's, I think that's, I mean, that's exactly right. There's, there's, yeah, like you say, there's, there's court cases where people do not have to donate. Like, you know, even if their, their, their cousin is suing them, like, please donate the kidney that's the only way i can survive right the courts are like appalled they're like that would that would fray the very fabric of society this would no longer be a free country if you <laughs> could you know be forced to donate a kidney to your dying right. um to your dying cousin they won't even allow like a blood test there was some case with the kidney issue where um they couldn't even force a blood test to see if there was a match. Um, the person would be Compatible, right. 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 It's, so, it's unbelievable. Uh, and, and all of that, by the way, in the face of the conservatives on the court back in the uh, 90s, accepting that we all have a unenumerated, non-textual constitutional right to refuse unwanted medical treatment, which right. seems very close to what, you know, not now, now, so if Justice Alito were here, he would say, come on, you guys, there's a big difference. None of those cases involve another human life. And, our and your response to that is, I think, what you said earlier, right? That, that we've always, these, these choices that we have to make in some horrible situations, it, 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 there are rules about that, and it's not what, and it's not the fetus wins. That isn't the rule. <laughs> no, the rule is the fetus would not win. Right. And, and you know, so, yeah. And Karen, and, read, and, reading your great article yesterday gave me a thought I hadn't had even after thinking about, writing about, and talking about Dobbs now since June, like 20 times, your article sparked this to me, and I, I want to get your reaction to it. It occurs to me that women in Texas today, and maybe 15 other states, 20 states, have less rights when it comes to terminating their pregnancy than they had in 1795 when abortions were legal until quickening, which is like 16 weeks. Absolutely. That's insane. <laughs> it, it is insane. It's It's... We've reached a point where it, it there's there's a sort of a fundamentalism about it. Um, but I mean, I, I partly facetiously, but it does make me wonder um, what questioned in the article whether this really was an attempt to put women back in their place. Well, um, right. And this kind of halcyon days of you know times like I said when men were men and women had babies. Um, <laughs> it's I mean, there's something so retrogressive about it and reactionary that really they're that concerned about the fetuses like this. It, it, it can't be that they're that concerned about the babies, because once the baby's born, dump it off at the fire station. Like, right. this is not about child welfare. Right. Um, so if it's not about child welfare and 
it can no longer really be seen about um, as as about getting votes, given the fact that general public opinion in the United States is not for zero abortions, no incest or rape exceptions, um, doctors going to prison forever. Um, then then what is it about? It's got to be about something. And, and I really don't think it is about life, because it, if it were, then there would be some more concern about, well, what about after the baby's born? Yes. <laughs> I, I, well, you know, 100%. I, I wrote a blog post a couple of years, uh, last year. We are the only Western country in the world, the only Western democracy type government in the world that doesn't have a federal maternity paid leave program statute. The only one. There's no American way. Not Canada, not England, not France, not Spain, not, none of them. It's insane. I want to ask you about how, um, because I, you are a great writer. I've, I've said that since the day I first saw your first, when I interviewed you, whenever that was, I read your first piece. I thought, this is a great writer. Um, so I want to talk about, about, about how Dobbs was written for a fact, because I think it confirms right. what you just said. I, I, as someone who has quite publicly taken the position that Roe and Casey are constitutionally problematic at best, um, there are, based on my views of constitutional law, there are ways to write Dobbs that would have been so much less offensive than the way Justice <laughs> Alito did it. But what makes that even worse in my mind is because of the leaked opinion. He yeah. They saw the reaction, not just to the result. We all knew the result. Anyone who follows constitutional law knew where the result was going to be. Sure. It's not that. It's Let's just take one example. Matthew Hale, this horrific man from the 17th century, who was a witch burner, who, who believed men could rape their husbands. He put that in the draft opinion like three times or something like that. There was this huge outrage, which we know he saw, and they right. kept it in. Why would they keep in this, these references to this horrific human being who lived 500 or whatever it was, 400 years ago, who was as anti-woman as a human being can possibly be? After hearing the the... So what do you, do you have any theory as to how, and let's talk about Justice Barrett for a second, no matter how anti-choice she is, why would right. she keep, why would she sign an opinion with referring to Matthew Hale over and over again? I mean, I don't know. My, my, I wonder if there's not, not for Justice Barrett, but I'm wondering if from Alito's point of view, he's, he's somehow subscribed to the. I hate, I hate this phrase, but this owning the libs theory. Yeah. Like, they're really angry. Great. My job is done. Um, or, or, or he's so blinkered that it's Matthew Hale was a great jurist. Right. You know, forget about the horrible human being, but, you know. Um, I think I'm just going to have you do voices for the rest of the podcast. That was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I don't even realize I do that until I, you know, sometimes my kids are like, Wait, can you say, can you do that one again? Like, oh, <laughs> I want to hear that one again. So, I, it's probably not an owning the lips thing, but I do think it's sort of like, it's this very blinkered. It's like, he was a great jurist. These are the men we should be. And of course, it's always men, right? Right. These are, the, you know, these are the founding, I see I'm doing the voice again, the founding fathers right. of, our, right. of our legal jurisprudence. Um, I don't understand Justice Barrett at all. Um, I, I just don't, I, I don't, I can explain her I to can't. you if you want. Oh, please. I kind of, cause I, I mean, first of all, I don't know her. We have met a couple times. Delightful person in person. 
Um, oh, I'm sure. She is, and I'm sorry. So I, I get in trouble whenever, I, I want to distance you from this. I don't want you to get in trouble for this. This is my opinion okay. and my opinion only, not my guess. Um, okay. <clears throat> I'm just going to say it. She's a religious nut. I'm sorry. I mean, she belongs to a very, very fringe right-wing sect um, that, that is to the right of the Pope by like 12 standard deviations. Um, and <laughs> I'm sorry. I was just going to say the Pope is awesome. Yeah, okay. I just put in a book for so, so, right. the best Pope that we've ever had in my lifetime. I, I love the guy. He's Me fantastic. too. She's to the right of the worst Pope you've had in your lifetime okay. by, by, by about 10 standard deviations. Um, right. and, and, uh, the other thing people should know, just as an aside, I've said this before about Justice Barrett, who's a very smart person, no smarter than hundreds and hundreds of other law professors whose resumes are very equivalent to hers with the exception that she was a clerk to Justice Scalia. Okay, fine. There are hundreds of female, I mean, Trump wanted a female to replace Ginsburg, which is fine. I, I like that idea. Um, who are, had exactly the same resume she did, exact, or better. The difference right. being Notre Dame, the dean of Notre Dame recommending her to Scalia, who almost never hired Notre Dame clerks prior to, you know, to her. Mm -hmm. um, her place on the Supreme Court, I believe, was planned by conservatives for 15 years. Um, and they wanted her on the court. When, so that's where she's coming from, if that's any help, I think. I guess I was like, I don't understand her in terms of, personal I, I mean i guess i just don't think she has a, a solidarity bone in her body yes like a <laughs> no sense of the shared yes the shared struggle of the right. sisterhood um right. i mean honestly i don't really think it was a plus that 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 she's a woman i mean the fact that she's a woman doesn't help me at all no it hurt you actually um, <laughs> i mean it, it's i I know that they were, I know that, that she is sort of the, the fruit of many years of careful planning. Yep. And, you know, I mean, hats off to the careful planning Federalist Society guys. Right, They've, right. You know, they, they definitely right. make liberals look completely disorganized. And Yep, well, we are. And, That's fair, because we are. Um, I know, and it's, and it's sad. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's literally, it's just, she's got the shape of the woman, of a woman, but not the heart of a woman. Okay, I, I, I love that quote. I'll leave it there. I want to go back to coverture um, because people may be thinking, yeah. I'm sure some people are thinking, come on. I mean, even very pro-choice liberals might be thinking, this is bad, but it's not, but it's not coverture. And what I want to, and of course, it's not, you're not arguing that it's one-to-one. -one, you're just making an analogy. But right. I do want to say to those who are skeptical of your comparison that it feels to me like this decision was written as anti-woman as humanly possible. I can't imagine a more, just how it was written, forget the result. Because we, as I say, right, right. you know, I'm sympathetic, I have to admit, to the constitutional result. But the way it was written, citing Matthew Hale, citing a lot of people from that, you know, from, from the 15, 16, 17, 1800s. And the whole idea, and this is, now this is going to segue into some originalism stuff that I want to talk about with you. Um, the whole idea that we would have hard issues involving women's rights today and would resolve them by looking at the 17, 1800s. Whatever one thinks about originalism, isn't that preposterous? I mean, isn't that just nuts? Absolutely. I, 
yes, I think it is completely nuts. So, um, uh, and it's just typical. And it makes me, it, again, it sort of makes me angry, which is, you know, which is why I was, I started kind of getting all right. upset about this when I was thinking about Giles and things right. like that. It's, and we'll get to Giles. Um, we'll get to Giles in a minute. Um, sure. You said earlier that, and I've said this before too, that maybe it's not all about the fetus. Maybe there's other things going on. And right. and when you read Dobbs, one definitely thinks that. I, mean, I don't know how anybody can read Dobbs and not think that. But right. Equally importantly, Karen, I, I'm I'm curious. I, I really respect your judgment about things. And here's one thing I haven't understood about the. I'll call it the pro-life movement. You and I both know it's not really pro-life, it's pro-fetus. But why does somebody in Oklahoma care so deeply whether someone in New York gets an abortion? You know, there aren't a lot of issues like that. Like, let's take affirmative action, which is really controversial, right? And which the court's right. going to end this term. It is, affirmative action does not in any way, it, it didn't change our elections. It, it didn't change how we do our politics. We don't have marches on Washington because of it, because people in Oklahoma, I don't think care whether New York does affirmative action or not, as a general proposition. Um, I really don't. Yet, I also don't think people in Oklahoma care, or Kansas or Georgia or wherever, care what New York's felony murder laws are like, and some are more restrictive than right. whatever. They care so much about abortion, it doesn't ring true to me that it's about the fetus. It has to be something else. I think, I think that there's different people with different beliefs. So it's, sure. I don't think there's like one answer for everyone in Oklahoma. Hundred um, percent. I'm certain that there's got to be a sizable portion of people who have a very deeply held belief that abortion is morally and religiously wrong. Right. <clears throat> and so I think they care because um, they think it's a, a sin, effectively, or some something like that, um, and it. You know, it, it it hurts them morally that it is happening in their country. So for the for the true believers, the the genuine, the people that have a, a sincerely held religious belief, um, you know, I don't I don't agree with that. But I mean, I don't agree with it. With, but I can I can understand where they're coming from. The other using it in some kind of instrumental way, though, I do agree. There's something else going on, and it's not that. There's all these true believer Catholic people or or right. evangelical people who are, you know, because that that's not all the people that are making these these laws or who are seemingly concerned. Um, but that's true. That that's polarized. true. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go no, ahead. That's okay. That's true. But having or and, um, you know, Jack Balkan has done amazing work on social movements and how social movements affect the Supreme Court. And right. um, this social movement of the, the, the pro-life social movement has been so strong for so long and so political that I don't think we can drain the politics out of the movement. And the politics, I think, are not about the fetus. That's, that's my layperson kind of view on this. I kind of, I mean, I agree. So I'm saying, so putting aside the people with the genuine, you know, yeah. the 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 sincerely held religious beliefs. I think, I think it has something to do with this, this, um, this stereotype of like the, the godless coastal elite. Yes. <laughs> They're awful, 
um, it's this almost like a Sodom and Gomorrah idea of, you know, people are just having abortions on a whim. And, and a lot of, look, a lot of it does go into, again, very sexist ideas about like women doing this out of convenience, right? you know, as if, right. you know, having an abortion is, is the kind of things like, oh, you know, so I'm going to get up, get a latte, pick up my dry cleaning, have an abortion, um, you know, like that's 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 my to do list as a city as a city woman, you right, know. Right. Um, that that it's like selfish and you know and so it shouldn't be allowed because because people are either they're having sex and they shouldn't be having sex. I think that wrong. I think that's a big part of it. Right. Which again, so I think when we're t- coming back to talk about the preference between the fetus and. And the, let's call it the host. It sounds ridiculous, but yeah. you know, it sounds a little sci-fi. But you know, the fetus and the person carrying it. Um, there was um, a really, and I'm not going to remember her name, and I'm going to feel really terrible. But somebody wrote a really good piece. She writes a lot about abortion, about this like hierarchy of innocence, right? And the idea that like the fetus is like this supremely innocent being because it hasn't had a chance to make any decisions yet. <laughs> you know, it's. It's um, <laughs> it has no agency, and so no matter how good, kind, and sweet the person carrying the fetus is, they're gonna have made some mistake. Probably had sex, <laughs> or you know, if they're the victim of a crime, then they probably did something else bad at some other point. Right. Um, and uh, it, but there, yeah, there is something. There's there's a a punishing moralistic aspect to it that's 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 very unnerving. And and. and... Two more things about abortion, then we'll move on to gi- to a whole different issue. Um, I th- in your piece, you you allude to this, um, and and, and I, I've written about this too, but I don't have your criminal law background. Um, we allow people to take other people's lives all the time. I mean, there all are the many. Time. So give some, all the time. <laughs> well, matter all the time, but there are no, many know, examples of that, right? Yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, if if I hear a disturbance downstairs, I can just grab a shotgun and and kill whoever doesn't matter if it was just you know some kid who knocked on my door looking for a halloween party um you know and was just wrong right you know i've been to your halloween parties they're very good so it's possible that that would be pushing time to get sorry go ahead (laughs) um but no i mean you can you can kill someone you know you can kill an intruder in your house um even if you're wrong even if you've made a mistake if you thought you know, right. it doesn't have to be like a robber who's armed. It could be someone right. who just, you know, walked into the wrong house or parked on the wrong driveway. You can shoot them to death. And, and- we allow physician-assisted suicide in 11 states. I think it is 11. Which, okay. Which isn't, ex- isn't exactly the same thing, but it's taking a life. I mean, it's, 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 it's ending a life is my point. It's, it's, and war. Yeah. To, me, to me, war is the big one. To me, it feels like if we, I, I'm not talking about a war of defense, but an aggressive war. Or, or, or even when we go to Kuwait to try to repel, you know, Saddam Hussein in 2000. Right. We're, or 19, excuse me. Um, yeah, 2000. Um, we're going to ki- affirmatively kill people for what most people think was a reasonable, or some people think, was a reasonable reason. But the point is, we justify it. It feels right. like to me, if you can justify invading, going to the Middle East to help Kuwait repel Saddam Hussein, you can justify a rape victim terminating her pregnancy, even worse, unimaginably, a minor who was raped. 
or even right. worst of all, raped by a family member. And in right. many states, that's not going to be allowed anymore. That's right. Well, like that, that kid from, was it Ohio? Yeah. Oklahoma? Somebody had to go to another state. A woman, a, a girl, ten, a 10-year-old in Oklahoma, in, in Ohio. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Um, and No, and I mean, not to mention the death penalty. Not, not to mention the death penalty. Whole, <laughs> that's right. whole system where we can, you know, I mean, obviously, the, the argument is, well, they, they forfeited their life their right to life by killing somebody But we still else. take it. We still take it. We still take, take it. Take it. We'll do it. We'll take I don't want to slide by this point because it's, it, it, I have found in, in arguing this with people, it's a really important one. The argument can't end with its murder or, or its killing. The argument can't end there because there are no, a lot of killings and murders true. we allow, right? Right. Yeah. Because it's not, because that's not how our legal tradition is based. Exactly. We have All right. multiple exceptions right. for right. killing Last, last question about abortion. Um, and again, I'm just asking your opinion here. Obviously, we're not. Any thoughts? See, I think 30 years from now, maybe 40, we're going to be in a much better place. I, I, I'm, actually, I'm actually optimistic. I'm known to, on the radio stations that I do, I'm known as Dr. Doom, Mr. Doom and Gloom. Um, but I'm, but, and I am <laughs> doom and gloom for the next 20 years. But I'm not doom and gloom long term. Um, eventually, the madness will end. It's going to take a while. Hope, Do you think I'm wrong about that? I hope that? I'm not too old to see it. Um, no, I think I think if you take a sufficiently long view, I think that's right because I feel like public opinion generally in the country, the court is now way out of step. Right. There, there's always been some aspect of it being out of step with with public yeah. opinion, but there's got there's going to come a point where they're just too far um, off base and and. They're they're just too much of a fringe. They're, they're, right. They only make sense to a fringe portion right. of the population, and it's not it's not ultimately going to be sustainable forever. When the court has um, done that in the past, in in eighteen fifty seven, and um, frankly the eighteen and even eighteen eighties nineties, but mostly from nineteen hundred to nineteen thirty five, you know, the president slapped them down, and the court came into line. And that will happen, I think. But right. sadly and tragically, there's going to be a lot of despair and death along the way anyway yeah it's it's okay it's let's leave that getting... depressing issue for now um you are um you, you teach criminal you know criminal law you were at AUSA uh prosecuting narcotics is that what you mostly did yeah narcotics organized crime organized um, narcotics crime. Is always, it's, yeah organized crime that was the fun one <laughs> um but no the narcotics was good not because I believed in um drug prohibition or anything right. but I did get to meet my husband who was a DEA agent <laughs> at the time through that. So I will always be grateful that I was temporarily a narc. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I'm deeply grateful too, because I really like your husband, but leaving that aside. Um, so talk to me about something I know almost nothing about this Giles mm. case and the idea of what statements come in and what doesn't. Now pretend you're talking to non-lawyers and give them like a, uh, a non-lawyer summary of this. Sure. So this is a piece I wrote a couple of years ago, um, uh, reviewing the, 10 years after the court had the Supreme Court had decided a case that basically was like a, an evidentiary issue. So it was deciding which cases, which I'm sorry, which statements by dead victims could come in in murder trials effectively. And up until that case, Giles v. California, um, if someone had made a statement to the police saying, for example, um, my boyfriend tried to kill me or, you know, I've been attacked, uh, et cetera, and then later was killed by the boyfriend. Um, the common law 
uh, sort of forfeiture by wrongdoing exception allowed those statements to come in because um, if he was accused of having killed her, there was sort of enough, you know, it was basically it was foreseeable that, you know, he had made her unavailable as a witness. Therefore, her statements could come in and he couldn't say, well, it's not fair. You can't use those statements against me because it's like, well, it's your fault. She's not there. Um, when Giles came along, um, the, the Supreme Court, Justice Scalia, our old friend, um, decided that um, this was a violation of the Confrontation Clause, which, you know, enables um, criminal defendants to hear from the witnesses against them live and be able to cross-examine. Which I assume you feel, I assume, maybe I'm wrong, that's a really important thing, right? To be able to face your accuser sure. seems to me like a really important part of due process. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. There's, you know, you, you definitely don't want to be um, tried by a, a piece of paper or right. an affidavit or something. Right. Um, and the, 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 um, the, the change they made in this forfeiture by wrongdoing idea would be that those statements of the victim who had said something about, for example, their fear or earlier assaults by the, by the person now accused of having murdered them, um, could only come in if the murder had been committed, at least in part, to prevent the victim from testifying as a witness. Now, that's very, very, that's easy to show in any sort of witness intimidation case, um, but almost impossible to show in a domestic violence case. Sure. Because the reasons for killing your partner in a domestic violence case typically um, have a lot to do with, you know, control, anger, jealousy, um, general homicidal hideousness, um, and often don't, it's not easy to show that you also killed your wife because you wanted her not to testify as a witness. Um, and uh, Giles, the, the, the opinion, did this whole song and dance about like, you know, we've never had a special rule for domestic violence. That would be ridiculous. Um, uh, you know, the, the, there's, there's nothing in the, um, there's nothing in, in the original understanding of the confrontation clause that said anything about women. Um, of course not. And, and things like that. Um, but effectively what, what made me so angry about that case was that <clears throat> There were, first of all, there were exceptions to the Confrontation Clause, one of which Scalia had basically talked of um, in, a, in a positive way based on history. One was a dying declarations exception. So dying declaration is somebody has, you know, tried to kill you or mortally wounded you, and you say, Fred did it. Um, and if you say that when believing that you're about to die, even if you don't actually die, that's a whole other thing. But basically, if you say it about the circumstances of your imminent death while believing that you're at death's door, that can come in. Wait, wait, wait a minute. And wait. Pa I'm sorry, Karen. Pause right there. So I've not thought about evidence since 1983, which is like, a, I don't know, 50 years ago. And or who something. can blame you? But are you saying, I'm sorry to pause on this, but for the, for the lawyers listening to this who maybe have, are not yeah. evidence experts like me. You, are you saying that the dying declaration exception applies even if you don't die to the hearsay rule? Yeah. I never knew that. That's insane. I'm, 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 I don't know if it's insane or not, but it feel, in the context it, of what you're about to tell me about Giles, it feels insane. I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I mean, it's a little insane because, the, I mean, it, it's not a great exception because the idea is that if you really believe, you genuinely believe you're going to die, you're much less likely to lie. 
Um, whether that there's there's all kinds of like scholarship about how you know you can be in a state of um, almost dementia from loss of blood and things like that. It's maybe not the most reliable time to be. <laughs> so, so, so Karen, to be, I'm sorry, I don't want to bring us down. I'm just going to say this very quickly. Yeah. My my dad passed last month, and for the last couple of weeks of his life, um, he was in very bad shape. He said a lot of things, but he was in very bad shape. The idea yeah. that those statements carried an indicia of reliability is frankly no, only, is insane to me i know but it would be it would be only if he if it was like at the time when he was like i am about to go in the next couple of minutes okay and now what i say okay. it would be only that okay i'm sorry for the distraction i just think okay. no 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 not at all okay. um so going back to giles so there already was an exception to this like there absolutely has to be confrontation so that was already allowed and why because it was history because the framers wanted it that the way. flamers um, i love that <laughs> that's great <laughs> okay um and um and then the other thing was he was saying plus we can't possibly have a specific rule for domestic violence but the fact was giles was specifically putting out a, a a rule specially for domestic violence cases, because the only kinds of cases that would ever fail the Giles test, that is where somebody had made previous statements about their fear or previous attacks by a person who later is accused of murdering them. Um, and you can't show, you cannot show that it was, the murder was committed, at least in part for the purpose of preventing that person from testifying. The only times that's going to come up is going to be in a domestic violence homicide. And so he was doing the specific. Oh, wait, wait, why is that? Explain, that? explain that to me one more time. I'm sorry. What? Tell okay. Let me, because um, there's very few cases where a person is murdered by someone about whom they have made previous statements to the police. Got it. Say. Got it. Sorry. So as in, I am in fear of this person or this person is already attacked me. I'm afraid right. they're going to kill me. Um, it's really only going to happen in two situations. One, when you've witnessed a crime right. and you're going to be testifying about it right. and someone has called you and said, you better not testify or you're going to be found at the bottom of the river, something like that. Then they're going to call the cops and say, I'm afraid of testifying. You know, they said they'll kill me if I testify. Then they get killed. You know, right. clearly they have been murdered for the purpose of, um, you know, right. preventing them from testifying. Got it. But in, and the only other situation where that's going to come up is going to be, um, I found one case in all of these, I looked at every possible case I could, <laughs> I only found one specific situation and it's not on point. Um, every other case is going to be an ongoing relationship case where the person has been in sufficient fear to contact the police right. um, um, and, and then they're murdered. And so what I was arguing was that really what this was about once again was a distrust of women and it comes back to our to cardozo and stuff like that cardozo had a very famous line in a case called um united states v shepherd this guy dr shepherd had allegedly murdered his wife and by poison and at early at some point during her illness she said dr shepherd has poisoned me and um, Justice Cardozo said, the reverberating clang of these accusatory words would drown out all weaker sounds. And basically, the jury would not be able to decide the case Jeez. because they would be so swayed 
by this you know voice from beyond the grave yeah. um that they, that there was no way that they could that they could evaluate it so that effectively that that could never come in so poor old mrs shepherd trying to say i'm afraid my husband has killed or has poisoned me um you know couldn't that that couldn't come in and so what my my complaint or my my critique was that this is just coming back to this idea that like juries are too they're too emotional they're too easily led and these these terrible women are going to be like lying to frame their husbands um and then commit suicide or something like that and then the poor man can't defend himself against these right. the reverberating clang of these voices and it just it was so sexist and so um once again like so old fashioned it's like these 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 old historical ideas about conniving women and and these poor men who can't defend themselves apart from that they've just killed somebody but you know and giles is still the law oh yeah so my main my main part about the article was that most of the state courts are kind of ignoring it right so um good that for them be, that was my, i'm glad that was why i pulled it so the I'm state be, courts don't have i'm going to be Sorry, selfish for a second um uh, Karen, Please. because um, I didn't, I know not, I'm not a criminal law professor. I know nothing about this whole Giles disaster. It does corroborate, though. Everyone thinks it's a disaster. It, it does do. corroborate what I have written and said on this podcast many times. So Scalia is the only dissenter in the VMI case where a publicly mm-hmm. funded state institution that produces elite soldiers said, no, women aren't allowed. Court reverses that right. seven to one with only Scalia dissent. Now, Thomas didn't take part, so who knows what he would have done. But in any event, it was seven you know, to one. Scalia is the only modern justice I know of all the originalists who actually said the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause does not give rise to heightened scrutiny for women. That women get a rational basis test as opposed to the um, heightened scrutiny every other justice, I think, on the court has applied right. uh, to women. Um, I could go, and then, of course, his his hostility towards abortion, his hostility to certain civil rights claims brought by women. I could go on and on. My mm-hmm. point I want to make to those listening is this man was an unconscionable sexist, not by the standards of 1860 or 1930, by the standards of 2000, when he was an active Supreme Court justice. And, and, this, is no, and yet this Giles stuff is another example of that. He just, he had this medieval view about women, and yet, and yet we have a law school named after him, Harvard has a chair and a friend of mine holds that chair and my friend's a great guy, but there should not be an Anton Scalia's chair at Harvard. That's insulting to women, I think. So when I say this to people, I don't know what you're going to say now. I've given that speech many times and I often get booed out of the room. I I don't think we should honor this man. I I think in our lifetime, he held views. I'm not even talking about LGBTQ or race yet, which I could go into in detail, but just women. His views on women were unconscionable. By our standards, um, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? It's hard to say. Should he not be honored? He was a very entertaining writer. He and was for that alone. I I give him a fair yeah. bit of credence. Yeah. Um, no, the, the the opinions are definitely sexist. Yeah. He was best friends with RBG though, so could he have really been that awful? Yes. I don't know. Yes. So my, so on this podcast, once a podcast. I have to mention Judge Posner. It's a rule. It's a law. It's written. Into of the course, bar- of course, you do. It's written into the bylaws of the thing. So I yes. asked, and, and of course, Posner knew Scalia personally. Um, right. 
Posner once told me two things. Two things can be true at the same time. That yeah. Scalia and Ginsburg be, did have a genuine liking of each other. That was not fake. Um, you know, yeah. they were both very smart. They were from similar back. They both loved opera. They had a lot of things in common. Yeah. And they loved playing that out in public. They thought it was a great thing for the Supreme Court, for these two people at the opposite ends of the political spectrum right. to show how close they were. And that was very intentional. And so, so I think both of those things can be true. Yes. So I think, yes, he could be a sexist and yes, Ginsburg still did what she did. No one knows. Yep. All right. So you mentioned writing. Um, we were about out of time. This has been awesome. Thank you so much. Um, I want, but I want to finish with this. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I cast you a thousand questions about the mafia in New York because I love mafia movies. I am going to ask you actually one, one question before we get to legal that. writing. Yes, yeah, sir. Sure. Does the mafia in New York or other places kill witnesses that are going to testify against them? Is that a real thing? Oh, God, yes. Oh, God, yes. All the time? Oh, not all the time, but, you know, but it's not just the mafia. It's also like gang cases. Actually, the most, the, the cases where we had the most frequent um, murdered witnesses or, or, or possible, you know, yeah. attacks on witnesses were gang cases. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. Sorry for that naive question. I was just, you know. Yeah, no, no, no. Um, it's um, it, yeah, but it does happen. It's it's not an infrequent thing. So you have a journalism background, or oh, more than that. I mean, you were a journalist, and and you're. I really want people to read this Virginia piece and other pieces you've written, because you write, leaving aside the substance, which is excellent. You write. I, I'm so jealous of your writing; it kills me because it it flows <laughs> as if you're reading a novel, and and I think you do flout some legal conventions to get there, which I'm all in favor for because you're all about transparency and your writing is so transparent. So my question is this, are we doing it all wrong? <laughs> we meaning law schools enforcing down students' throats, you know, the most formalistic blue book rules that I don't, only nuts care about anyway. Sorry if they're nuts out there, I apologize. Um, yeah. Are we doing it the wrong way? I think, I think to some, there, I feel like there could be some loosening up of the rules. Okay. Obviously, I think you can only play with conventions once you know how to use the conventions. So yeah. I don't think everybody should go in and try to be, um, you know, like, there, there's nothing worse than humor badly, badly deployed. Yes. Um, so I think that, um, yeah, writing clearly and, and, you know, knowing how to quote a case and all that, that's, that all still needs to be taught. What I don't think we need so much of, though, is is this very rigid part one, part two, part three. Right. Um, you know, uh, your solutions in part three. There's not always a solution. There's there's a lot of um, yeah. There's 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 like a straitjacket in yeah. in a lot of the writing that I think makes it so boring. It's boring to read. Right. Um, it's boring to write. Uh, and I do think, so I don't know that we're doing it all wrong, but I, but I feel like there could be, I mean, things where, for example, law reviews have, have tried to make articles shorter. I think that's all to the good. Me too. Because those 90 page articles, you know, that 60 pages is just literature review and, right. you know, trying to right. take up the space right. and, and such. Right. Um, look, I think I think having more online journals or having basically all the journals have an online um, presence has been good because a lot of these articles are they're a lot more timely. Yep. They come out much more quickly. They're shorter. Um, and I think that is good. But, yeah, I think 
mean, look, you. Uh, yeah. Well, I, so, I so, think, so I one think one last idea to throw at you about this. Um, before before you came to Georgia State, um, I yeah. floated an idea about our legal writing program here, but this is applicable, I think, to most law schools. Um, mm. That before we start teaching legal writing, we need to teach yeah. writing. <laughs> you know, ju just yeah. just white and strong. I mean, just clarity, transparency, and all that stuff. And I was told this, I, I have no idea if it's true, and I may have changed over the years. I was told the ABA didn't let us do that. That if we actually had a course that's just grammar, you know, gr basic, you know, cardinal rules of writing to be a good writer, it somehow wouldn't meet right. some legal requirement that we had. We couldn't have it graded. I, I don't remember. But, but my question to you is, I, I, I do think, I, I do think that, that lawyers might be better liked, among other things, if we wrote more <laughs> like regular people. Like that, that Virginia Law Review piece, and I, and, I, and I give a lot of credit to the students there, a non-lawyer could read your piece and really yeah. understand it. Beginning, middle, end, flows. You, know, you, you explain everything carefully, but transparently. Um, I think that's a great thing. I wonder how we can get there faster. <laughs> I mean, I think that our school in particular has a very good writing program. Me too. Like the fact that we put in the amount of the amount of time. Mm -hmm. When I went to law school, legal writing was half a semester. Right. It wasn't even a full semester. It was half a right. semester. At least our students, they get a whole year. I think that's great. But I mean, look, part of it is college, right? A lot of once you, I mean, you probably have seminars where you get papers and you just yep. think, boy, yes. hey, yes. this is terrible. <laughs> and by the way, when I went to law, I'm much older than you. When I went to law school at Vanderbilt, our legal writing program was 12 weeks. And it was, and and there was a professor. Oh, this who, a longer than mine. Really? Wow. And it was taught by, yeah, it was taught. Mine was six weeks. Six weeks. Yes. Six or seven. Where'd you go? I forget. Oh, okay. no, that's where I said that. Right. Wow. I'm we didn't we didn't need, you know, apparently if you got into Columbia, you didn't you, you yeah. knew how to write coming out of the womb. So, you know. Well, that may have been true <laughs> when you went to law school, but it's definitely not true anymore, <laughs> without a doubt. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. um, I think one theme that I want people to take away from this whole hour, whatever it's been, is um going back to the other stuff we were talking about, is this Supreme Court, I think, is deliberately trying, I'm gonna use this phrase, to put women in their place. And it drives me. I have three daughters. I have two daughters and a gender non-binary. But I mean, I, I, it, it drives. I was attending, as people who know me know, uh, women's consciousness raising meetings when I was thirteen in 1971, <laughs> when my mother was having them. I think we're going backwards, like really far backwards. I, I completely agree. I mean, one of one of the things I feel is a possibility is that we had this like. These magical, and they were hardly magical, but we had this like this 50 year period where women actually had the chance to try to right. even things a bit. And the shocking thing is we've barely gotten there. Like something, something about like the, the CEOs of top fortune 500 companies. It's like 7% are women, right. something ridiculous. I'm probably getting like, you know, and, and God forbid women of color, it's like 2%. Right. Um, right. So even with the 50 years of, of you know, formal and reproductive-ish equality, um, we're still so far behind. Like right. a quarter of what? A quarter of judges, a quarter of Congress are women. Um, we still haven't had a woman president. Right. And now, God forbid, you know, you 
fall pregnant, then you can forget everything for the next nine months. And the, and, and the saddest thing of all of that to me is poor women. The way we treat poor, I mean, women of means will find ways usually. <laughs> Not, but up to a point, yes, but not even not even women of means are going to be entirely insulated. Fair, and I'll because leave it at if that. If you, you end up at the hospital yeah. and the doctors are scared to do something, you're you know your money is not going to help you. That said, far far worse for women of not means, also who are still facing criminalization of of you know pregnancy. You know people there's. You know, states are attacking women for like taking drugs while pregnant. Suddenly, that's assault, and right, um, right, it's completely outrageous. Well, this podcast won't do anything for my reputation as being Mister Gloom and Doom, but I hope, but I hope people realize um, how serious, how seriously sexist this is in fatal and life-changing forever ways. And I, I hope I'm 64. I hope by the time I'm 94, this will be behind us because it's, um, it's. Uh, it's a sad state of affairs. Karen, thank you so much for being Drink here. I, <laughs> Drink to that. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. It was a and pleasure. It was a great pleasure. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye.